Miss the show, no worries on point and on the podcast. Coming up, we'll talk about minimum wage. If raising it is the answer to lifting people out of pottery, why is the data, which comes from Stats Canada, tell us that the majority of those getting minimum wage aren't low income at all? In fact, most people making a minimum wage still live at home with mom and dad. If Ted Rogers could speak from the grave, what would he have to say about the family riff now playing out in public that threatens to destroy the family business he built and was determined to protect after he was gone? We will speak with the author of his memoirs who explains the checks and balances Ted put into place to protect this Canadian empire. And the latest sex scandal rocking the NHL is shocking, but no one should be surprised because what seems obvious is that when it comes to protecting young athletes, those in charge keep protecting the power structures instead of the young athletes. Theo Fleury has been speaking out on this since his own sex scandal broke, and he has plenty to say about why the more we say we are changing, the more things stay the same. Take a listen. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. In terms of the parliament, I think the hybrid parliament has opened up a door to to more participation and it allows for families or for for members of parliament with maybe young families, uh, people that have other obligations to be able to participate and still and still be able to fulfill those obligations. And so I, I think it's a it's it's opened up a new opportunity and I want to see it continue. No thanks. No siree, Mr. Singh. The door should be closed on any thought of another dysfunctional hybrid parliament. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, October twenty eighth. Yes, indeed, we are uh, inch and ever closer to Halloween. I don't know about your household, but it is all the talk in this house because of course tomorrow's costume day at school to which you allow your child to wear the costume for the day before the big night, and then, of course, the costume comes back destroyed, and it's kind of like that. But the kids are all excited, and I'm excited for them because they need it. We have a busy show, and I anticipate the show will uh, not fall off air tonight. It has last night. We lost a few minutes because of technical gremlins. And um, we're going to talk about... uh, well, jo- well, Theo Furry is going to join me after 7. Um, you certainly know him as a scrappy NHL star. But he was one of the first to break his silence on the sexual abuse that he suffered at the hands of a former hockey coach. Someone who he called one of the most influential people in his life. And at the age of 13, instead of, you know, mentoring him and getting him ready for hockey stardom, the infamous Graham James used his position of trust to prey upon a very young Theo Fleury, also Sheldon Kennedy, who, like so many gifted athletes, were put into the care of these strangers under the guise that they would be built to their potential and then instead were preyed upon. And, you know, we've seen it over and over and over again, not just in the hockey world. We've seen it, you know, throughout sports, whether it's swimming. We saw it in the world of gymnastics with athletes like Simone Biles speaking out among you know, hundreds of young gymnasts who are violated by their team doctor. And then despite all these big names speaking out, it continues. Which brings us to Kyle Beach, who you've been hearing a lot about, this prospect once upon a time for the Blackhawks, who has now broken his silence, revealing he also was sexually abused by a former coach. And of course, management did nothing. Zero. Zilch. 
All these years, all these people knew, and no one said or did a thing because, hey, got to win a Stanley Cup. Hey, it's all about the money. Hey, it's all about protecting the brand. So how does this happen? Theo Fleury says he has a lot to say on this, and he's not going to hold back, which means we should get the seven-second delay button all ready to go. But I want to talk about a temporary measure that we should absolutely not allow to become a permanent fixture in this country, and I'm talking about a hybrid parliament virtual parliament. Remember this measure brought in during the pandemic? And if you ask me, it has made parliament a charade because it in no way serves Canadians as much as it does serve the politicians who use it, love it because they can hide behind it. And now both the liberals and the NDP say, well, it should be here to stay. And to that, I say, no, get the hell back to work. Get back to work. Singh says it should be permanent so that parents and women with small kids can have more flexibility. And you know, I heard the comment. I said, you know, Mr. Singh, we have something for that. It's called child care. And if you are an MP, you can afford it. We don't need that kind of stuff. So we can afford child care if you're making the salary of an MP. He argues, though, it worked well during the crisis. And I don't know how he comes to that conclusion. First of all, a lot of ministers would skip question period, right? Some would turn on their screens and pretend that they were there, and what they were doing is taking off their pants or pissing in a cup, you know, when no one was looking, or so they thought, right? I mean, there were MPs literally caught with their pants down during virtual parliament. So the only party it really helped was the liberals because it gave them coverage they do not deserve. It allowed them to do things like filibuster their time and avoid answering questions. It allowed them to control a narrative that was... You know, fictitious at best, and it could not be challenged because when you sit behind a computer screen and you're a politician, you can avoid the media because the media can't have access to the politicians because the politicians don't have to leave chambers and walk through the reporters who wait to pounce upon those who deserve to be pounced upon. So we are not at all served well by orchestrated talking points set on Zoom or however they do it. And the only time politicians can properly be knocked off their talking points is when the media puts the camera and the mics in their face, period. That is the only way you can truly get a politician to show their true colors. And history shows the success. Decades of this. Some of Trudeau's worst moments come when he is bumped off script. Let me give you example 100 million. How could it not have occurred to you that that might not have been okay? Uh, the fact is, we work. Uh, the uh, sorry, let me just try to reorder reorder the thoughts. Yeah. We um, worked with uh, the the uh, uh, lobby conflict of interest commissioner. Got that? Yeah. You see how that works? See how that works? That was back in 2017. That was back in 2017, just after Trudeau had been caught and uh, slapped on the wrist by the ethics com commissioner because he vacationed with the Aga Khan with all his liberal buddies. That was his first ethics breach. And there were lots of cameras in his face because he had just come out of the house. And so he was challenged over and over and over again with the same question. question. And then, credit where it's due, Rosemary Burton actually asked him like a pretty simple question, like, how could you not have known this was wrong? Pretty simple question. Well, Rosemary, you see, 
I was wrong, and uh, I admit that, and the ethics commissioner has uh, laid uh, guilt on me, and I, I apologize for that. It won't happen again, period, whatever. And, and, and he didn't do that. He just, let me reorder my thoughts. No, you don't get to reorder your thoughts. You cannot do that. You cannot do that if it's done virtually. No politician can be truly challenged on a video screen, which is why they absolutely must go back to work in person where they can properly represent us because we pay them to be there and where reporters can actually do their job. And trust me, these days there is so much to be challenged of all the ministers, all of them. You know, if we can go and hold a uselessly expensive election, if the prime minister can jet off all over Europe for days on end and deal with climate and all the rest of it, and if most of the MPs are vaccinated, then there's absolutely zero reason why we should normalize something that in no way serves Canadians, but very much serves the politicians who can capitalize on it by hiding behind it and controlling a narrative that doesn't actually exist. So to that I say, no, go back to work, period. Great to have you here on this Thursday. So the popular narrative from the left always has been, you know, that if we just raise minimum wage higher, then it'll lift people out of poverty. But according to Stats Canada numbers, when you break it down, the majority of minimum wage earners in Ontario don't actually live in low-income households. So that defies the popular narrative. And the Fraser Institute dug into this data to see what it shows and found that between 2009 to 2019, minimum wage went up 24% to $14. And the opposition keeps pushing this to go higher. But when you look at the data, and this is not Fraser Institute, this is Stats Canada numbers, those under 25, we're talking teens or young adults, 86% of those live at home with mom and dad. And they are the main earners of minimum wage. 92% of those making minimum wage don't actually live in low-income families at all. And yet we demand it just keeps going up on this premise that people are being left behind. Ben Eisen, Senior Fellow in Fiscal and Provincial Prosperity Studies and a former Director of Provincial Prosperity Studies at the Fraser Institute, is the author of this report. He joins us now. Good to have you, Ben. Thanks so much for inviting me. So when you look at the data, um, 1.9% of all minimum wage earners are single parents with young adults. I mean, that's still talking to thousands of people. However, it is not nearly, I think, as high as most people assume. Absolutely. Um, When we think about the minimum wage and what's often used in the reasoning behind uh, calls to raise it is often that it'll help lift lift people out of poverty and low-income situations. However, when you dig into the numbers, you find out uh, the, the reality is that most minimum wage workers aren't actually living in low-income situations. Instead, they're secondary earners, very often teenagers or young adults, uh, living with, with, uh, in households that aren't poor uh, because there are other earners uh, in the household who are lifting that household above low-income status. So that means that if your goal is to reduce poverty, uh, the minimum wage, we should be skeptical about its ability to do that in large numbers simply because most minimum wage workers aren't low-income to begin with, so they can't then be lifted, uh, by definition, out of low-income status. And as you say, uh, the very important key example of low-income individuals, uh, single individuals with young children, that only represents about 2% of minimum wage workers. So if we want to help that group, uh, which makes perfect sense that we would want to, to to avoid hardship and 
uh, things and, and suffering and to make sure that people are okay, uh, we should be looking at more precise instruments to target at that rather than using a minimum wage tool, uh, which, which 98% of which doesn't reach families in that situation. Right. I mean, the the old saying is, "Don't let facts get in the good way in the way of a good story." Um, but this popular narrative has been built in. You know that we've got to continually raise the minimum wage, and I believe everyone uh, deserves a fair wage. You you know you get out what you put in. Um, but there's also a narrative, Ben. Um, you know that people we somehow have come to the point where people are going to stay on minimum wage forever. I mean, minimum wage jobs are not supposed to be a lifelong job. They're supposed to be an entry to the market, whether it's a McDonald's, you know, serving at a restaurant or, you know, a lower um, skilled job. They're not supposed to become lifelong jobs unless, of course, you're just doing it to pick up extra money and maybe you just like to work and you're, you're, you know, as you get older, whatever. But they're not and we're never really supposed to be lifelong careers. And in most instances, they're not, and that's and and you put your finger on exactly the issue, and that's why um, the the vast majority of minimum wage uh, or a large majority of minimum wage earners are teenagers or young adults, mostly uh, many of whom live with their families, and many of whom are getting uh, first job and experience experience that's going to help them get better and higher paid jobs in the future, either within the organization they're starting at uh, or moving to another position elsewhere that pays more. Uh, but it is often for a lot of people a first step on the ladder uh, that helps them begin developing skills and experience and contacts uh, that leads to, to more higher paid work uh, in the future. So th- that's really a, a portrait of who most minimum wage workers are uh, rather than heads of household uh, trying to support families uh, alone on a minimum wage. That's a very small minority uh, of people. And again, we should be developing tools to target and reach and help them rather than raising a minimum wage, which can have negative effects on employment uh, and at the same time is not effectively targeting uh, the people that we're trying to target. Right. Uh, But nonetheless, I mean, cost of living, as you know, is now going to be an everyday headline. Inflation is going up. Energy prices are going up. Uh, You know, people are falling behind and are very much struggling. And that is not going to end anytime soon. And so I think we're going to hear more and more of a push you know, to get minimum wage higher to help those who, who need the help. But what is then, uh, from from what you see with the numbers, what is the strategy then that policymakers should, in fact, be implementing to actually help those who need the help? Well, in short term, uh, short, there's short term choices such as been made uh, during the pandemic. But longer term, you want to try to focus uh, to the extent that you can. And it's not easy to design properly, but you want to try to get it right. Um, pro-work policies where possible. For instance, uh, focusing on low-income households and topping up uh, the wages of people living in low-income households so that uh, there's additional uh, benefits for the working, working poor, so to speak, which is who we're often trying to help through the minimum wage. Tools like the Canada Workers' Benefit, uh, and before that, a very similar policy introduced by the Harper government called the Working Income Tax Benefit. Uh, so those flow to low-income households and give additional money uh, to top up low wages. So that money doesn't just flow uh, to minimum wage workers as such, uh, which as we've discussed, aren't always, uh, aren't always low income households, but actually flows to working people uh, in, uh, in low income households. So it more accurately targets them. Those are the sorts of policies that we should be looking for. Uh, tax relief and direct uh, letting people keep more of their own money uh, for people at the lower end uh, of the household income spectrum, instead of focusing on the low wage uh, minimum wage er- mm-hmm. earners, uh, which are not the same thing. We need to disconnect them in, in our minds because they're disconnected in reality. 
Right. And, and so we have to change the conversation on a whole bunch of things. And no question, the labor force, as you know, has been hit in this pandemic. In fact, it's been turned on its head. The hospitality industry's lost uh, almost 200,000 people who are said to not go back. Uh, and maybe they've mm-hmm. gone into other businesses. Maybe they've upgraded their skills, whatever. They're not going to come back. Um, and, and I think in time, Ben, people will start going back to those jobs once they feel mm-hmm. that we have a little more stability under our feet. Um, you know, but we know that the provincial government here in Ontario has been changing the language on things like trades, where for whatever reason we don't talk about them in schools because they're not maybe as sexy as getting your university degree. But boy, oh boy, if I could go back and do it again, uh, I'd be taking a trade because they are great paying jobs. You can, you know, make your own hours. It's stability when times are tough. Um, so maybe it's just ch- changing the conversation instead of always talking about raising the minimum wage as to how people can get out of and into a new wage bracket. I think you raise a very important point there. And what we see is that lo- whether you're low income or not, whether your household is low income has a lot to do with how many hours uh, you get to work uh, as much as it does what your hourly wage is. Obviously, those things are both going to affect uh, how prosperous you are. And do you, I think you've, you've identified a very important issue. If we're going through a period, which we're, we may well be, uh, it's hard to know if it's transitory or, uh, or permanent, uh, in which there's a significant shift in the labor market and people in uh, old jobs uh, no longer exist and they struggle to find uh, things that suit them well, uh, helping them get training and reskills so that they can work in the jobs that do exist uh, in the economy, that could be a very useful uh, approach for governments to help people develop skills that uh, allow them to work in jobs that have emerged and uh, perhaps move on from jobs that no longer exist that they used to do. Uh, that happens sometimes. It's sometimes referred to as frictional mm-hmm. unemployment, where the jobs in the economy aren't the ones that people are trained for. And that's something the government should look at and, if necessary, provide support. Uh, but helping prepare people, helping uh, provide skills to people to thrive in the economy is a much better way to help uh, and much better way uh, and much more pro-work and anti-poverty way uh, to try to help people than raising the minimum wage, uh, which may, might help a small percentage of very low-income workers, but it won't help very many, uh, and it certainly won't help the very lowest-income households and individuals, which are those who can't find work at all, uh, and those are people who we need to find ways to help. Yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, in the hospitality industry, there is also the push of paying better wages. But I mean, you're mm-hmm. a frontline server. You know, people aren't talking about the fact that you pull in a lot of tips. I mean, that is why a lot of people get into serving food or alcohol is because you don't really care about the paycheck because you're going home with cash in your pocket every day. And a lot of people don't even, you know, uh, talk about that come tax time. It, it, it can be very lucrative unless maybe you're behind the scenes as a dishwasher or in the kitchen or maybe some of the uh, hide the seeds jobs. So do you see anything changing there as, as far as how that industry can be changed without giving up all the, the extra cash you get in tips? It's very, that's a very good question, and it's very difficult to know what's going to happen. We have obviously, as you've mentioned, a short-term crunch in which employers uh, are having difficulty figuring out how they can set wage levels in a way that's uh, sustainable and uh, affects the current employees that they have, uh, while also attracting people uh, to the jobs that they need to get filled right now. This is a, a challenge uh, for, for the labor market generally. It's hard to know whether it's short-term, in which, ter- in which case um, w- w- there might be direct short-term policy response, or whether it's longer-term. And if it's longer-term, and this is uh, difficult for difficult to attract uh, people at, at the old wages towards jobs of that nature. Uh, firms will have uh, no choice except to wage, raise wages to attract people. Um, but that question of whether that's going to happen or not 
uh, depends on whether this is a short-term period of a labor shortage or whether there's been a major shift in which it's going to be proving yeah. difficult for people uh, to, hire, to hire in those jobs. And that's something uh, that we would need a crystal ball to know for sure. Oh, boy. I'd love to get a crystal ball. One day, Ben. <laughs> one day. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate it. It's interesting data. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That is Ben Eisen with the uh, Fraser Institute. So there you go. We'll see if that narrative changes. All right, great to have you here on this Thursday night. Uh, the question I wonder, you know, if Ted Rogers could speak from the grave, what would he be saying about the family rift now threatening the company he built? I, I suspect he'd be horrified by how public this has all become, but maybe not so surprised because even before his death, he was smart enough to make sure he left behind plans to deal with all possibilities, you know, rules to resolve it. I mean, this guy, this man was no dummy. He understood better than anyone that the company he built from scratch needed to be protected after he was gone. And so he wanted this multi-billion dollar juggernaut to be kept in the family, not for it to tear the family apart. And now here we are watching this family tear each other apart as the world watches. Robert Brell is the co-author of best-selling uh, book, Relentless. This is the true story of the man behind Rogers Communications. He joins us now. Good to have you, Robert. Nice to be with you, uh, Alex. You wrote a fantastic um, write-up in, in the Financial Post uh, about, you know, the hours you spent with Ted, the players involved, how all of the ins and out works. And I think it's a, it's a great perspective of anyone trying to kind of figure out the landscape of this. But... You knew them all. You knew Ted, Lisa, Ed, Melina, and Martha, his wife Loretta, who hired you to pen his memoirs before his 75th birthday back in 2008. So you spent a lot of time with him. And given what you learned about Ted and what you're seeing now, what do you think he'd be thinking or saying? Well, I wouldn't disagree with how you encapsulized it at the beginning. Uh, he certainly wouldn't be surprised. Uh, that's the only thing I can say for sure. Uh, but he, I don't think he would be happy. Who, what father would be, what person would be happy? Every family has challenges. There's no question. Uh, anybody who tells you their family is perfect is either lying or naive. Um, but as you also said, he, he was a brilliant guy. He was a visionary in many ways. And if I can just take you back a little bit to give you a little bit of background, this story goes back almost 80 years it goes back to when Ted's father died in, in May of 1939, when Ted was just five years old, almost almost six. He was going to turn six about three weeks later. His father died young, and they lost the company. And his father was a genius. His father was brilliant. Mm -hmm. He started uh, CFRB radio, and mm -hmm. he also invented the world's, not Canada, but the world's first plug-in radio. He, he was the first in the world to figure out how can you, instead of using batteries, these old, big, clumsy batteries, not batteries <laughs> like today, but instead of using batteries, to plug it into the electrical unit so that the, the currents didn't affect the reception. So he did that. He, he Rogers Batteryless was the company. In fact, CFRB stands for Canada's first Rogers Batteryless. And anyway, <laughs> lost the company. And all through his early life and into his later, uh, his, you know, uh, 20s and 30s, Ted's mother said, your job is to get the company back. Now, ironically, Ted always thought that the company was, quote unquote, stolen from, from the Rogers family. 
by a, uh, in, by unscrupulous people, including a relative. Uh, I think it was hmm. Ted's uncle, his father's brother, anyway, uh, and other people as well. But that's how far back this goes. In this, so then Ted builds his company, builds this builds this thing, and it was imperative for him. His number one reason for almost everything was to keep the Rogers family in control of the company that he spent 47 years building. Yeah. I mean, and when you were meeting with him over those months, I mean, he knew he was ailing. Uh, He passed away 18 months after his 75th birthday. Um, He was very careful to plan with, with, you know, for that. And he discussed it with you very openly about these checks and balances he was putting in place, kind of likening it to the U.S. um, system where you've got the Congress and then the White House. Um, So he had very specific protections put in place to make sure that the company was protected by the family, for the family. And he wanted to see a separation between the ownership and the voting shares so that no one had the ultimate power um, and people could be taken out of power if they weren't doing their job. It's very, very confusing, I think, to the average person to kind of pick their way through it. But he did put checks and balances to protect from what we are witnessing today. And so we know that this is going to the courts uh, by Ed Rogers on Monday. Will all the checks and, and balances that Ted Rogers put in place protect this company ultimately? Boy, I I'm not a judge, but uh, he certainly put a lot he put a lot of checks and balances in play, and and one would think that on Monday uh, the court will the courts will decide either Edward does have the right to do what he has done, in in other words, fire the board that fired him as chairman, or uh, it will say you have to go to a shareholders meeting to do that, and if that happens, Edward mm-hmm. controls ninety seven percent of the voting shares. So uh, right now, Edward would certainly seem to have the upper hand. It's certainly interesting. You know, Ed is not his father, Ted. I did meet um, Edward. Uh, I've met his wife, Loretta. I've met the whole family, actually, and I went to his 75th birthday. So I, I do know the players involved. And, and from my per- perspective, you might agree or disagree, Ed was not his father, Ted. Um, not quite as sharp. I, you know, having said that, he was put in charge. The other sisters, uh, Melinda... She is involved in the day-to-day. Lisa kind of kept out of it. Martha never dealt with the day-to-day business. And Martha never really struck me as a person driven by money or power, yet it's very clear. Um, you know, she's been very vocal, openly taking on, you know, Ed on the Internet uh, and who she considers the old guard, who she believes are really um, threatening this company. Uh, so it's very interesting to see all the players where you've got the sisters and the mother now going up against Ed. Yeah, it's 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 not pretty for anybody involved, and and as I said earlier, and anybody in a family, you wouldn't want all your family secrets coming out, but it's sure looking yeah. like a lot of them are. Um, I would also say that though Ted's number one uh, thing was to make sure the Rogers family kept control. At least temporarily, the Rogers family is not in control because you've got John McDonald from New Brunswick, former Bell Canada president. He's now been voted mm-hmm. chairman of RCI, the, the company, not the control trust. The control trust is, is the ten, or the ten, five members of the family and five other uh, mm-hmm. counselors or advisors, and that's where the, the votes. The, the votes for the company reside, which te- which Edward has control of right now. Uh, so you've got and you've got Bonnie Brooks who wrote a letter to John Tory, 
uh, all there's so many machinations going on here, and it's it's very complicated. And if anybody is confused, well, I can't blame them, but it's just it's 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 a story. It's the biggest wireless company in the in the country. It's I don't I don't even re- really know how to explain it, but it's it's not pretty right now. But hopefully things will settle down. Uh, after Monday when the court decides one way or the other, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's such a massive brand that until this really took the spotlight, I don't think Canadians really understood just the enormous um, imprint that Rogers and really Ted Rogers himself uh, put in this country, on this country, in the world. Uh, He did that himself. That was not anything his kids did. He did it. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, what happens remains to be seen. But nonetheless, even if Ed... Uh, ultimately succeeds in the courts, um, Robert, the divide with this family, um, no matter what, this is not what, Ted had two loves, his business and his family. Um, And as you point out in the book, they weren't always on equal level, but his two loves are now very battered and bruised. Yeah, there's no question about that. There's no question at all about that. But but the the company can come back. This is this is a, a temporary situation that, that hopefully won't drag on for too long, and there will be definite resolution. Um, that's, that, that's what he wanted. That's why he had all those checks and balances in place. Uh, he, uh, he, he hoped this would never happen, but that was the reason yeah. that he put so many checks and balances in place. Yeah, ultimately, he did not want this company to go the way of so many other Canadian companies and brands like the Eaton family. He just wanted to make sure that this particular company he built, um, you know, remained Canadian, remained in the family and and therefore didn't go the way of the dodo bird. I got to be honest, um, your view from it is fascinating. And I think if anybody who wants to truly understand kind of where we're at is uh, I would encourage them to read your article, which was in the uh, post over the weekend. I really very much appreciate you joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure, Alex. Robert Braille is the name. He's the co-author of the best-selling book, Relentless, the true story of the man behind Rogers Communications. And uh, honestly, he spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with Ted Rogers to put this book together. And boy, what a time to uh, pick it up. If you really want to read about what Ted Rogers' vision was after he left, um, you know, this earth, it's all laid out for you. So if you're interested in it, the book is called Relentless. I was scared, mostly. I was fearful. I had had my career threatened. I felt alone and dark. It's tough to recall these moments. Um, I think mostly I, I felt like I was alone and there was nothing I could do and nobody I could turn to for help. Oh, so, so sad. That is the voice of Kyle Beach, who, as you know, and had been hearing, has broken his silence after a decade revealing he is a survivor of sex assault. That happened at the hands of uh, one of his former uh, coaches who did video uh, coaching and worked for the Chicago Blackhawks. And that is a team that drafted Kyle Beach, first round pick back in 2008. And he's detailed the abuse he suffered at this man's hand. He took the complaint to management. They did nothing because at that time they were more worried about winning a Stanley Cup and hurting team morale. And they did win that cup. And Beach, um, you know, throughout his interview, which he did with TSN, uh, says, you know, he was forced to stay quiet. He, he had to 
travel with the team. He was forced to stay in close contact with this coach, Brad Aldrich, threatened that if he said anything, his career would be destroyed. He says he was tortured. Um, you know, he became the, the joke of the locker room. He was ridiculed on and off the ice by all sorts of people, management, players, whatever. He had to live in silence. And uh, Brad Aldridge would eventually leave the team and, of course, has since been convicted of the sexual assault of a Michigan student. He is now a registered sex offender. Beach is not, of course, the first celebrity athlete to expose his horror. I mean, the question is, will he be the last? And uh, I think we already know the answer to that. Former Calgary Flame and author of the book Playing With Fire, Theo Fleury joins me now. Theo, it's good to have you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Thanks for reaching out. I uh, appreciate uh, you know the opportunity to talk about you know what what what's going on. You know, you were one of the first um, pro NHL players to break your silence over your own um, sexual abuse at the hands of disgraced hockey coach Graham James. You and Sheldon Kennedy, uh, another survivor, broke your silence at a time that we didn't have nearly the understanding or compassion as we do now in 2021. And so your reaction when you hear of Kyle Beach, who was much, much younger when this happened, this was, what, 11 years ago? What goes through your mind what goes through my mind is that uh, we just don't get it. Like, we just don't get it. And, you know, that, uh, you know, how many more examples do we need before we're actually going to put some policies in place and some protocol of exactly what you're supposed to do when this happens, right? You know? Uh, Catholic Church every day has to talk about sexual abuse. Uh, Michigan State, the Larry Nassar case, uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, the um, you know the Boy Scouts of America. Like, how many more examples do we need that in the underbelly of society? Pedophilia is a huge issue in society. And, you know, mm-hmm. this week, the example is the National Hockey League. Next week, who mm-hmm. knows who's going to, you know, be the example or the, you know, the, the sign from the universe. Like, let's, let's get this right because we've, we've done such a horrible job of dealing with this. And I would say the Blackhawks, uh, it's an absolute train wreck how they're dealing with this. And they are digging themselves a bigger hole by, you know, even in the report, you know, the report states that everybody knew and all the interviews after they're still trying to throw each other under the bus. They're still denying, you know, which is absolutely ludicrous and it's disgusting. And, uh, you know, it's really done, a disservice to people who are still out there who are voiceless, who, you know, who, who need to talk about this. You know, we we are deterring people who've had this happen to them of not coming out. Right. And and Kyle Beach, I mean, it must've been agony for him to come out. He barely spoke to his family about it. I mean, he's really been kind of suffering in silence. Um, But you came out, Sheldon Kennedy came out. We had the Maple Leaf sex scandal with Gordon Stuckless. Uh, Martin Cruz would 
pay for that with his life. You know, we always hear never again, um, Theo. And then we hear, you know, gymnasts, hundreds of them, voices like Simone Biles, who, who went public with their abuse again, um, groped and, and sexually violated by someone in a position of trust. And, you know, parents who have children that have a, gal, a talent or a gift in, in athletics or maybe celebrity, you know, they put their kids in the trust, you know, billeting hockey players or whatever. You're put into the trust of mm -hmm. these people who are supposed to mentor you and bring you to your potential, only to learn time and again. Um, you've handed your children over to monsters who are in the system. And, and you say, like, when are we going to get a system in place? Well, to me, I'm looking at Kyle Beach. Well, he did what he was supposed to do. He told somebody, but they did nothing. Nothing. Everyone knew about it, including yeah. Jonathan well, Taves, the team captain. But no one, no one did anything. It, it, that is typical of how organizations handle this, this stuff, right? First of all, it's denial. Okay, didn't happen. Then somebody starts to investigate, and then, and then they have to admit, oh yeah, might have happened. You know, it's just. It's just tip. Just tell the truth. Tell the truth, and from truth, then we can get to forgiveness and and understanding and all that way more quicker. And what's happening right now is the NHL has dug themselves a big hole, and I don't know if they're ever going to get out of it. Especially now in this woke society where you know uh, people love to cancel yeah, other yeah. people. You know, I can see this happening with the NHL and. Uh, you know, I've seen videos already of uh, Chicago Blackhawks fans who 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 are one of the original six teams in the NHL. You know, people throwing jerseys in the garbage can and starting to burn them and all that. So this is not a good look for the NHL, and they better. Uh, and, and this is what happens when you're not proactive. Mm -hmm. This is what happens when you're reactive, right? Everybody yeah. starts denying and turning on each other and. You know, it's just it's it is a mess, and I don't know how how the NHL recovers from this. And I don't know. The, yeah. And and we had the coach, the coach yeah. who wrote a letter of recommendation for the guy <laughs> to go to Michigan to go abuse another kid, and he's he's coaching last night. So what yeah. does that? Say? I mean, uh, what is that? What yeah, is that I'm, that's yeah. I mean, the, the NHL basically um, allowed. Yeah. We are I was just going to say the, the NHL basically allowed a, a predator to hunt uh, for more for more victims, um, and, mm -hmm. and and he's now a registered sex offender. Um, Joe, Joel Quenville, the, the coach of the team, he met with Gary Batman today. Um, he was well aware of this allegation years ago. Uh, we know that one manager has been fired. The team has been fined $2 million. I don't know how Joel Quenville does not get fired. I don't know how Gary Batman doesn't get fired. I don't know how... Um, you get changed yeah, every, unless the whole system's torn everybody, down. Everybody that was involved in this and didn't do nothing should never be allowed ever again to be a part of the National Hockey League. That's how disgusting this is. That's how horrible it is. And, uh, you know, a lot of people got hurt in this, in this uh, thing. And, uh, you know, to watch Kyle... And the amount of courage he showed, but I, but I really want to commend mm -hmm. uh, Rick Westhead who did the interview because mm -hmm. I think that interview and how he handled the situation should be shown at every broadcast school on the planet because that's how you take care of uh, you know the victim, which was Kyle, 
allowed him to give him give a voice and when he needed to jump in to you know to show that compassion and kindness and and the courage that Kyle showed was was textbook because I know when I came out with my story and I had to go out on the interview circuit it wasn't it mm-hmm. wasn't like that it was not like that no so so I want no. and I yeah, I remember that you you I faced wanna, a wall of cameras and flash uh, flash cubes and um, and, yeah, and a lot and, and of questions I, being fired was, fired at I, you. Yeah. I I was victim blamed and all kinds yeah. of crazy stuff, and it was just you know it was it was one of the hardest things I ever did. But uh, you know, and thank God I I'd been in, I interviewed you know you know thousands of times because I was able to sort of navigate through all the, the, you know, all that stuff and get a message out of hope and healing and recovery. So, so I just wanted to, you know, to mention that and give, uh, give yeah. Rick some, some kudos for the way he handled it. Cause it was one of the best, best interviews in the situation that I ever watched. Yeah. Compassion, compassion goes a long way. And Theo, you've been very open about the destruction that this caused in your life. You talk about mm-hmm. the booze, the drugs, the failed marriages, uh, the, the, the millions you, you squandered because you were just in a pace of a place of pain um, trying to deal with it. Um, this young man, Kyle, has been dealing with this on his own. Um, I'm sure you still have your demons and your battles, but, you know, can he uh, can you ever get over this? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. You know, um, I think, you know, the, the initial shock, uh, for me was really difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, I, I found the true purpose for my life because I had this experience. Right. And, uh, you know, I've really been able to find the gift in, in what happened to me. And, uh, you know, like we've had a million people reach out to us in the last, 14 years after my book came out and, and people feel comfortable and safe being able to tell me their story or they say, Hey, I read your book. You know, you told my story. Me too. I saw your documentary, you know, or, you know, I listened, I listened to this interview with Alex and, and uh, you know, so um, there, there is, there is gifts and pain and suffering, you know, and uh, you know, that pain and suffering got me, uh, got me to change. And uh, you know, I'm really proud of where I've come and how many people I've been able to help and, and all that stuff. And, 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 you know, I can see Kyle, uh, you know, being a part of this and and we need more, you know, we need more men, um, you know, in this space, uh, looked at as, as, you know, true survivors and people have gone on to, you know, enjoy peace, joy, happiness, serenity, because ultimately that's where we want to get to. And, and, uh, um, but it's been a lot of hard work, but, but I can tell you that, you know, the more people that I've been around and the more people I've helped, um, you know, they've helped me heal too, you know, and I think that's, that's important too. And, uh, um, but we got a long ways to go because this is out of control and, you know, I'm just going to throw something out here and, and, uh, you know, Child and human trafficking is one of the largest industries on the planet, and it makes a hundred hundred and fifty billion dollar a year business. Okay, and who are the biggest consumers of child trafficking? Pedophiles. They are the biggest buyers of children. Are pedophiles, right? And uh, you know, uh, for some shock value, and people are listening to this interview right now. 
there's a little girl, uh, there's a little 10-year-old girl tonight in Alberta mm-hmm. who's going to be trafficked 10 times. So she's going to have sex with 10 men tonight. So just some for you to think about, because this yeah. is the underbelly of the worst of the worst that we have in society. And a perfect example is how we handle it. It's how exactly how the Chicago Blackhawks handled it this week. And this has to change. This has to change yeah. because, you know, and we also know that when a pedophile gets caught on average, he has at least 125 mm-hmm. victims by the time he gets caught. Yeah, that is so very this, true. And I found, so this, I've seen that firsthand so this, in the course. Yeah, so this video coach in Chicago, yeah, Kyle came out and the other kid came out. Well, there's still 123 other guys that this guy put his hands on. And that's disgusting. And and the fact that, that it's almost acceptable in our society is absolutely disgraceful and disgusting. Theo, I uh, very much appreciate your time. You don't have to do these interviews. I reached out, but uh, I thank you for sharing um, and giving your thoughts on this. You uh, give a lot of great uh, insight into this. Thank you very much. We'll chat again. Yeah, I appreciate it, Alex. Thanks, thanks for reaching out. Thank you. That is uh, Theo Flurry, the author of Playing With Fire, if you want to uh, see what the story tells. And uh, he has been very generous, very open about this. And he's right. Trafficking in this country, in Ontario, it's at record highs. We just don't take it seriously enough. Seriously enough, because people would rather look away. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. We'd love to have you. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.